Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, the NHS in crisis, how the Byline Times sees it. We've got a health service, which in England anyway, is riven by industrial disputes involving nurses and ambulance drivers with action pending by junior doctors. Ambulance response times are the worst on record. More than half of patients attending A&E departments are waiting four hours or more to be seen. Another historical low. And although waiting lists for routine surgery have improved slightly, they are still the second worst on record. Byline Times has been covering the crisis in detail and we'll be hearing from Byline Times investigations editor Sam Bright and David Oliver, an NHS consultant. Before that, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. The Byline Times is our wonderful monthly newspaper, which features content that you can't read anywhere else. We don't have a millionaire backer or large corporation supporting us. We rely instead on ordinary readers and listeners like you to support our fearless, non-partisan journalism, exposing corruption and holding the powerful to account. So you'll get details about how to subscribe over at our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. Let's welcome then NHS consultant David Oliver. And David, before we talk about what you've written for Byline, just talk to me a little bit about what it's like at the moment working at the coalface, as it were, of the NHS. I think listeners should know this is a whole system problem and every part of the health and social care system is under strain. If you start with the GPs, there's been no increase in the number of GPs since 2015, in fact, a slight fall. And yet during that time, their workload's gone up about 15 to 20%. So they're snowed under and burning out. Ambulance response times, as you said in your intro, are the worst on record. And they're just not getting to any of the incidents consistently within the time they're supposed to. And that was going on well before the industrial action. And one of the reasons they're not, apart from workforce crisis, is that many of them are stuck outside emergency departments waiting to hand over patients, which they're supposed to do in 15 minutes, but that's not happening. The reason they can't hand over patients is because emergency departments are absolutely rammed full, overcrowded, with very long waits. And contrary to how it's reported sometimes, the reason for that is not because of people who can't see their GP turning up with minor problems. It's people who are sick and need admission to beds, and there are no beds to admit them to, partly because we've cut and cut our bed base. We've got the fewest beds per thousand in the whole of the developed world now. And at any given time, about 13% of the general and acute beds are full of people who are fit to leave. And why can't they leave? because we have not funded or staffed social care or community health services properly. And so people are marooned taking all those beds out of commission. So at every part of the system, we've got capacity issues. And then the other thing is, there is a major workforce crisis. One in nine nursing posts is unfilled. One in eight social care vacancies unfilled. And even in other clinical disciplines like medicine, there are lots of unfilled posts at the moment in a nation that already has among the fewest doctors and nurses per thousand. And these issues have been a long time in the making, as I wrote in my column. In fact, I wrote in The Independent in February 2020, just before the COVID first wave, saying that all of these problems were present then. So I do think it's disingenuous for Steve Barclay to blame current capacity issues on winter viruses like flu and COVID, although there has been a surge. These are far more endemic 
problems than just seasonal virus pressures. Well, I've broadcast before on this podcast, David, about the years of austerity. And for many of the years of austerity, the NHS was given what were, in effect, real-term cuts in funding. Now, that might be quite difficult for people to understand because the actual amount of money going into the NHS generally increased. In fact, it did increase year on year, but it didn't increase in line with inflation. And the particular demands of the NHS historically have usually required it to have an increase above inflation in order to keep pace with an aging population and developments in technology and so on. So over the years of austerity, starting with the election of the coalition government in 2010, we have had years of real terms cuts to the NHS and cuts relative to the needs of the NHS and its patients. That's right. And just bear in mind that we're talking about social care a bit, which impacts the NHS. As part of a spending review after the election of the coalition government, they very deliberately cut local government support grants. And that in turn impacted on social care funding and left fewer people in receipt of social care than previously. This has been well documented by Nuffield Trust and King's Fund. They also cut the public health grants in local government, so we couldn't do as much around prevention. But in terms of the NHS itself, from 2012 to 2019, the service only received a 1.4% annual real terms funding uplift. The average across the course of the NHS has been about 4.3%. And during the Blair-Brown years, it was over 6%. Every health system in the developed world increases expenditure. And the reasons are obvious. You get changing demographics with an aging population, growing need, increasing cost of treatment. Since 2010, the UK population has both grown and aged. So in effect, those seven years of almost flat funding have left the system under-resourced. And the other thing to say is that compared to most nations, we spend far less on capital expenditure, you know, on buildings, equipment, facilities. And despite some of the rhetoric you'll hear from some on the right about the need to move towards European insurance-based models, the Financial Times demonstrated against 13 other European countries, we'd put about 20% less in over the past decade. So underinvestment is an issue, as well as the lack of workforce planning and attention to retaining the workforce. You can't recruit your way out of a staff retention crisis. There's no magic reserve of staff. It's a global labour market. And coming back to your Brexit theme, both Brexit and points-based immigration rules have harmed our ability to recruit staff for health and social care from overseas. So the antecedents of this stuff are long in the making. And in 2010, at the end of the Blair-Brown years, the service was performing well, wait times were low, satisfaction was high, and we were well up the international league table. So that it didn't need to get this way. And David mentions Brexit there, Sam. And if we're going to talk about Brexit, let's mention that big red bus, the Vote Leave campaign, saying that one of the dividends of leaving the European Union would be that the NHS would benefit to the tune of £350 million a week. So an improved NHS was what we were promised as a result of Brexit. Yeah, exactly. That was the infamous slogan like you say on the side of that big red bus that Boris Johnson stood proudly in front of and I think fundamentally this comes down to economic performance wider economic performance which then feeds into 
healthcare. So we were promised sunlit uplands with Brexit that we'd be able to take advantage and really hitch on the bandwagon of developing economies and boost our growth into a sort of new Victorian era of British productivity. As we all know, and we're suffering this on a day-to-day basis in the cost of living crisis, that hasn't materialised. We're the only major developed country in the world whose economy is smaller now than pre-COVID. And as a result, there's fewer resources to put into the NHS. So that big promise, despite the fact that the UK Statistics Authority said that it was a clear misuse of official statistics, so it wasn't even right in the first place. You know, we haven't seen those resources, the ability of those resources to go into the NHS because Brexit has hamstrung the economy. Estimates suggest that we've lost out on £33 billion worth of trade and foreign investment. If you think Brexit's not that long been done, so to speak, you know, we voted six and a half years ago, but you know, the parliamentary wranglings took years on their own. And so the cost to the economy has been huge in only a relatively short period of time. Increased trade friction, international firms seeing as a less attractive place to to put their money, us not standing up to the technological developments of the world, which will in themselves certainly help healthcare. And so Brexit has been, I think, a multidimensional failure for the health service rather than a success in any way. At the same time, in, in fairness, you do acknowledge this in your article, but we have to give something to the government here, don't we? The NHS has been the victim of two very particular and unforeseen circumstances, the twin-demic, as it were, of COVID-19 and seasonal flu. And I know that people will say, well, the prospect of some kind of pandemic was predicted in official exercises. Nevertheless, we didn't know when COVID-19 or similar would hit, and it hit the NHS particularly hard. And we have had a particularly horrible flu season. So those elements are unpredictable and out with any government's control. Yeah, I think what David says though about the antecedents to all this is really important. So on waiting times, for example, we've put ourselves in a really difficult position when we were heading into these crises. I think I think the point about the next few years is that we're going to see multiple unfolding crises in lots of different policy areas, not least related to climate, the economy, international instability with the war in Ukraine, etc. So you've got to provide that resilience in the system so that you can deal with those crises when they occur. And the fact is that from 2010 to 2019, NHS England's waiting times nearly doubled. So we were already going backwards at the time that these really serious health crises were taking place. As David says as well, the recruitment in the NHS, which is an acute problem, but we've seen across the economy as a whole, has been exacerbated by Brexit. I looked at the Nuffield Trust's report on exactly how leaving the EU had impacted recruitment. And it's damning. It's shocking. It's not just the fact that we haven't been able to recruit health workers from outside the EU at the pace that is needed. It's that certain specialist fields, the sort of heart and lung specialists, we haven't been able to recruit, which is putting an immense strain on our health service at a particularly critical moment, like you say, when we are facing this twindemic. 
I'm intrigued, you know, about the reduction in bed numbers. I'm speaking to you as I record this podcast a couple of miles away from the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham, very much a, a showpiece PFI hospital. And that was designed to replace the pretty grungy old Queen Elizabeth Hospital. Well, the new QE is on stream, but many wards in the old QE hospital are still in use. And in fact, on the same site now, there's going to be a private hospital built with additional NHS wards contained within it. So were people simply too optimistic about the pace of technological change, reducing the need for people to have long stays in hospital? I want to reinforce something that was said about elective care, about weights and Brexit and so forth, because the Nuffield Trust also produced a brilliant report comparing our postponement and delays from the COVID pandemic in planned care with other countries. And the conclusion was that, yes, every country had suffered delays and postponements of necessity during COVID, but we were hit worse than all of them because of our underlying structural problems. We already had this very low capacity to begin with, and so we didn't have the kind of resilience, we didn't have the headroom. And that comes on to the question of beds, If you look at the OECD league table now of beds per thousand, the UK and in particular England is right at the bottom. We've got about two beds per thousand. The EU average is about 3.5. France has over twice our bed base, Germany three times. And we have systematically cut beds over the past 30 years or so. And it may surprise your listeners for the whole of the population of England, there's only just over 100,000 general and acute adult hospital beds. Now, 13,000 of those are taken up with so-called bed blockers, you know, delayed transfers. That's not good. I think what's happened is that there was a philosophy, you know, with some validity, we didn't want lots of people hanging around institutionalized for a long time in hospital beds. Wherever possible, we wanted to shift people's care closer to home, focus more on upstream, you know, prevention, responding to sickness outside hospital. These are all good things. But the problem is, Unless you have adequate capacity in those step-down community health care, social care services, the hospital doesn't control the demand side. It doesn't control the number of people arriving at the front door. It doesn't control the supply of those step-down services. And when you're talking about new builds, yeah, I've been to both the old and the new hospital in Birmingham. What's tended to happen whenever there has been a new build is they've lost beds. It happened in uh, North Bristol, for instance, when Southmead and Frenchay emerged onto one new site. Over-optimistic assumptions, often based on consultancy reports. The Health Foundation published a report a couple of weeks ago suggesting we'd need another 39,000 beds by 2030. Obviously, there are people in beds who don't need to be there. And obviously, hospitals can always do more to make their own internal processes slicker and avoid delays and see people at the front door and get them back home. But I think most of that fat has gone from the system. So it's a complex issue, but I think most people would say you can't run hospitals repeatedly at 95% plus bed occupancy. If you went to the operational management meeting in any hospital on a Monday morning, they're starting every day in negative bed equity, every day 50, 60 beds down. And the other thing to say about the planned care, the elective care is In some countries, they separate planned care from acute care sites. That's very rare in the UK. So if the same hospitals that are hosting the emergency department are also doing the planned operations, whenever there's a surge of urgent demand or there's an infection outbreak, 
that will spill over onto the surgical wards and make it harder to get people in. It will take up intensive care capacity that you need for complex operations. So the two are inextricably linked. I think we've definitely lost too many beds. And again, the independent apolitical health think tanks are on the record about that, and the OECD figures don't lie. As this NHS crisis has unfolded, Sam, there have been those who have claimed that it plays to a government agenda of seeking to privatise the NHS. Now, I'm not sure that any government would want to see the kind of reports that are coming out about the NHS at the moment. But you've uncovered something quite interesting, I think, about a meeting of ministers with the all-party parliamentary group for healthcare infrastructure. Just tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so like you say, perhaps the government doesn't want to privatise the NHS, but given present circumstances, it might be more relaxed about private involvement than it was in the past. And a key forum through which private interests are heard in parliament is through all-party parliamentary groups, which are basically informal forums for parliamentarians to discuss particular policy issues. In this case, it's, as you say, healthcare infrastructure. So it's the building of of new hospitals and um, care facilities, etc. And several lords and MPs sit on this APPG, including a very recent former government health minister. And now this APPG, as we've uncovered previously, focused on healthcare infrastructure, is funded directly by four private healthcare firms, all of which have a financial interest in healthcare infrastructure in the UK. They've built GP surgeries, etc. They're involved in hospital building programmes. And this week, this APPG met with a government minister and the senior responsible officer, so basically the person in charge of the government's, again, infamous new hospitals programme, which Boris Johnson touted at the last election that we'd get I think up to 48 new hospitals, which has since been watered down to the partial redevelopment of most of those hospitals. And uh, another government, senior government official who belongs to um, an infrastructure authority was also present at this meeting, which kind of shows to you through the opaque corridors of power exactly how this operation of private finance and conflicts of interest take place. It's particularly acute during the week when lots of MPs outside interests have been exposed through the Westminster accounts. There will be talk whenever there's a crisis like this, won't there, about the merits of having a a private insurance system, much as they do in many parts of Western Europe, and whether that amounts to privatisation in the way in which opponents of privatisation mean it is, is a moot point, really. We have private operators within the NHS, don't we? We have private companies who build hospitals and we have elements of the NHS, which are private companies. Whether that amounts to privatisation is another thing, isn't it? So the, the nature of what privatisation is, is actually itself quite muddy and not clear. There are some people who don't want any private involvement whatsoever in the NHS. There are people who insist that the NHS should be free at the point of use, but are much more relaxed about whether, for example, we use private hospitals for additional capacity and so on. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think the thing that 
I return to with all of these stories. You know, we've talked about healthcare in one form or another for the last three years, Adrian, haven't we? With, you know, PPE contracts and the like is about the means through which the undue influence of private firms is allowed by our political system. Either you fund a parliamentary group or you happen to have the phone number of a Conservative minister, the ways in which the Westminster system is both impenetrable to those on the outside and actually actively helps those who have connections to those in power or the ability to fund their political interests, allowing them to have too much of a say and certainly more of a say than other companies over government policy and the direction of how things evolve in this country. David, do you think that the NHS is at risk of being privatised? And if so, what kind of privatisation does that actually mean? You're both right to say that, of course, there are parts of the NHS that are already privately provided or require fee-for-service, you know, dentistry and opticians, hearing aids, etc. And some people would argue that GPs are private enterprises. I don't believe that because although they're contractors, they're on a standard national contract uh, doing all the work for monopoly state provider. I think if you look at the proportion of contracts that are given to private firms, it's not risen particularly high. And I think there's large areas of the service that I don't think are monetizable. There are no private emergency departments, for instance. If you, you know what the private sector does is low risk outpatient and procedural care. There's a whole load of areas of practice it doesn't want to touch, and there's been instances of private providers giving the contracts back to the NHS. However, I think where the danger is, and you see this going on, whenever they have talking heads from the uh, right-wing think tanks or op-ed writers for certain newspapers, they're constantly saying, nobody copies the NHS, the NHS model's broken, we need to move more towards a European-style insurance-based system. And actually, I think 70% of people, I think it was Ipsos Moray, of the voters don't want the model changed. And where these people are disingenuous, first of all, they say that we're very well funded. Well, if you look at per capita funding as opposed to percentage of GDP, we're low to middling. But the other thing is several nations do have free at point tax-funded, publicly provided systems. You can look at New Zealand, Italy, Spain, some of the Scandinavian countries, and they're not insurance-based. What they are is they're more localised, less centralised than we are, and their outcomes are pretty good as well. So there's very selective citation of um, multiple provider systems by people with an ideological agenda who want to say, well, the system's so obviously broken, that's the only way forward. I think what a lot of conservative politicians and think tanks think in private will be political suicide to say in public, though, at the moment, because the public are still very supportive of the NHS, even though satisfaction levels have dropped to the lowest point since 1997. I don't know if that answers your question, but I think there's a real risk that as the service gets more and more broken, those will be the arguments. And of course, the other thing is lots of people are now paying for their own treatment out of pocket, whether they have insurance or not, because of the long elective waits. It's a really interesting point, David. I think for me, what's particularly striking is this production line that we've seen in the United States over various issues. And we've kind of seen in the UK, whereby you've got the think tanks, as you say, the sort of Tufton Street libertarian think tanks, which we've seen on both sides of the Atlantic. And they come up with policies like you say, they don't have to consider the political arithmetic of it all. So they come up with very ideological, purist, hard right ideologies. 
such as you know their views towards uh, privatization of the NHS. Then there's a production line through which those views eventually seep into the commentariat. You know, the newspapers, the columnists that you talk about, the talk radio stations, etc. And I think we're just seeing that part of the production line mm. come to fruition with NHS privatisation. And it's been really striking that over the past few months, we've seen that view that previously would have been heretic, that we might want a privatised or increased private involvement on steroids involvement in the NHS. I'm going to come back to the issue of why was the service performing well and highly rated with low wait times and adequate resource in 2010, and it's deteriorated ever since. And it's a calculated decision to under-resource. Now, I'm not quite such a conspiracy theorist. I think that's uh, the, you know, the Chomsky thing. If that's what you do, you run the services down so you can make the argument for privatisation. But we could have chosen to fund it properly and to staff it properly. And the other thing we haven't touched on is that if you look at the determinants, the wider determinants of health inequality and preventable ill health, things like exercise, diet, smoking, alcohol, obesity, addiction, housing, early years, education. For ideological reasons, the government has not invested properly in that whole piece about prevention policy. It believes in individual responsibility. It's too close to lobbyists. And the active cutting of public health support grants is the embodiment of that. The Health Foundation Marmot report update post-COVID was talking about unequal recovery. The other thing is that we've embedded the kind of inverse care law where the most deprived people have least access to care because local government funding is regressive taxation. It's based on property values, business rates. So most deprived areas can raise the least money. You've got massively unequal distribution of GPs depending on which geography you're in. So not only do people have health inequalities, but they also have inequalities in access to healthcare. And you go to any big city and you will see a 10, 12 year difference in healthy life expectancy between different council wards. And there's a lot of talk about we need to be a national wellness service, not a national sickness service. But ultimately, the real politique is that the immediate crisis in emergency departments or access to GP issues will always take precedence over longer term focus on prevention, just as there's been repeated ducking, which I wrote about in the BMJ recently, of uh, social care solutions. It's not sexy. Most people don't use social care. Most people don't understand it till they have to use it. And so that's been kicked repeatedly into the long grass. And there's also magical thinking, magical faith in digital solutions for everything. But actually, people do need physical personal care and they do need meaningful prevention policy. David, thanks very much indeed for your time. Thanks also to Sam Bright. You can read excellent articles by both David and Sam over at bylinetimes.com. You can also read a very excellent article too by our new recruit, Josiah Mortimer, talking about the number of GPs self-referring to the NHS Practitioner Health Service for mental health problems as well. So loads of great reading about the NHS over at bylinetimes.com. And if you want to support that excellent journalism, if you want to support this podcast, please take out a subscription to the Byline Times. It's a fantastic monthly newspaper, but as well as the paper, you are helping to support the website and this podcast too. And don't forget our new platform, which has additional Byline content. It's called bylinesupplement.com. That's bylinesupplement.com. My name's Adrian Goldberg. We'll see you again very soon with the Byline Times podcast. But for now, thank you. Cheers and goodbye.